This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Emma Dunphy. Now, in London yesterday, Boris Johnson appeared in the House of Commons in front of the Commons Privileges Committee. He has been accused of misleading Parliament during the Partygate fallout, and this committee has been interviewing all kinds of colleagues of Johnson and had prepared its case, and they questioned Johnson for three hours. It was potentially exciting viewing if you were into that kind of thing. Well, there's a better man than me to tell you what he thought is Chris Johns. Chris, of course, is former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland, a respected commentator now, and he watched Johnson. Chris, I watched a couple of hours of it, but I found it tedious, repetitive, Johnson dissembling, and I didn't see a silver bullet, as it were, that got him. But the papers have lashed him this morning, by and large, apart from a couple of papers that are bought by the Tories. Yeah, the committee probably didn't do as good a job as they could have from a forensic examination point of view. And it's fallen to, I think, more ordinary people and comedians to skewer <laughs> Johnson. Uh, because the, the line to take, if you wanted to have a go at him, was that you made the laws, you actually wrote these rules, you are an intelligent man, you've got eyes in your head, you're supposed to have good judgment as prime minister, you're supposed to have shown leadership, and on all of those counts, the fact that you stood there in the photographs with the glass in hand, making toasts, saying goodbye to people at all these leaving parties, uh, is getting you banged to rights. The fact that you simply sit there for four hours saying, I thought I was doing the right thing, doesn't cut it uh, on any test of reasonableness. Uh, yes. the, old, the old legal test of the man on the Clapham omnibus would have just laughed at this. And uh, I think that although the committee didn't do a good job of, of really towing to that line, of really, really going at him in that way, most people, including most of the press, interestingly, have reached that conclusion. David Yelland, who's an old 
journalist of quite high standing in the past anyway has has commented this morning, which I think captures the mood of a lot of commentators, a lot of analysts, and a lot of ordinary people when he says that Boris Johnson's awful reality is that he has lost the UK press. And there have been some notable newspaper columns this morning, uh, nuanced, but nevertheless, I think, recognizing that uh, this is now uh, a chapter in British history coming to an end. Uh, the Brexit wars, there's at least one and probably far more columns than I've been able to read so far this morning saying that the Brexit wars are over because Johnson is done. Um, I'm not sure whether that's 100% true. It could be over in the sense that the, you know, the Korean War um, is over. It was an armistice. It, technically, that war still exists. Right. It, it, it takes a, it, this could flare up again, and there are various ways in which this could twist and turn now. But because the country is so hungry for it to be over, when I say the country, I mean the majority of people. There are clearly a few people still fighting in the trenches, um, and they were very evident yesterday in, in the vote on the Northern Ireland Brexit bill, which I, I know we're going to come on to. Yes. But uh, there's lots of indicators, that vote itself being one of them, that people are just hungry for this to be over, and they're warming slowly to Rishi Sunak's quiet, boring, competent style of government, and for the psychodrama to be over. The idea that we got yesterday that Johnson would love us to return to, to the Brexit war psychodrama, everybody recoiled in horror, really saying, no, if this is what bringing Boris back means, we don't want any part of this. And I think that's even reached the backbenches of most of the parliamentary conservative party. Because even, uh, yes, there were the, the usual suspects um, supporting Johnson yesterday, but they were noticeable in how few they were. Yes. Um, so I think the country is is in a mood to move on. And, you know, I don't offer any hostages to fortune, but I do think that this particular version of Boris Johnson, we're seeing the beginning of the end. Yes. Now, the committee has to decide what, if any, penalty he must pay. He could be suspended from the Commons for a period. He could also be more severely punished by having to, I think, be re-elected in his constituency. At least he would have to face that electorate again if sufficient number, I think it's 500, decided to sign a petition and he could lose his seat in a by-election in those circumstances. But we'll leave him aside for the moment because there are, as you say, much bigger fish to fry. He left the committee hearing yesterday to go to the Commons now to go to the chamber to vote. 22 Tory Eurosceptics voted against Rishi Sunak's Northern Ireland Brexit deal. One cabinet, former cabinet minister, Tory, said that Johnson looked weak and lonely, but he did vote against that. So he's still limping on, shall we say. Much more important news, Chris, was really the inflationary figure at 10.4% that emerged yesterday, and I think the Bank of England is raising or expected to raise interest rates today, but 10.4% seems a staggeringly high figure relative to the rest of Europe, for example. One of the things that we often talk about um, on the pod, Eamon, is you ask me about what's going to happen next with various things, and I always say when it comes to economics, don't bother. 
forecasting is a mugs game and you yes. really, really can't forecast anything. And the thing about that inflation number that you quoted yesterday, the thing that was shocking about it was, yes, the level, that the, the double-digit inflation is still terrible, absolutely, but it was also a huge surprise because it had been expected to fall back into single digits. The fact that it didn't was down to a number of factors, a broad one being that inflation clearly is more well entrenched in the British economy than economists thought. There was also a seasonal quirk in that Britain over the last month has had a real problem with vegetable and salad prices because of shortages, because of poor weather, difficulties importing stuff from Spain, things like that. And so our food bills were up over the year 18% which is a lot worse than yours, for example. Yes. And so everybody is noticing this food price inflation. And right up until the publication of this inflation number yesterday, people were umming and ahhing about whether or not the Bank of England would actually put interest rates up today because the uh, fight against inflation was deemed to be close to having been won because we expected infl- economists expected inflation to start falling now. It didn't. And the other thing that's happened, of course, is the banking crisis. and. The, the banking crisis itself tells central banks to stop putting interest rates up. But they've, they've, they've put rates up. Uh, as we have been speaking, a quarter of a point on UK interest rates has happened. I've just so, got that news. It's 4.25% now, interest rates in Britain. That's quite serious, isn't it? Well, that's the highest that they have been in a very long time. For a lot of mortgage payers, this means that, that you know younger people than you and I, Eamon, are going to be paying mortgages um, at rates that they haven't ever seen. Um, you and I yes. remember mortgage rates being a lot higher than this in, from, from long ago. But you really do have to go back into the mists of time to find interest rates higher than this. And we, re- we have a real, real problem in the economy and the way it interacts with interest rates, the way it's, the inflation story is developing, and the way the banking story is developing. Because th- this will slow the economy. Just as last night's interest rate rise in the United States, because the Federal Reserve, their equivalent of the Bank of England, also put up interest rates yesterday, all designed to do the same thing, which is to slow the economy down in order to put the brakes on inflation. Now, that's all well and good, and you can understand why they're doing it, particularly in the UK, where inflation is surprising on the upside in a pretty horrible way, it has to be said. But if they do slow the economy down, that's going to create another problem for banks. Because one of the things that will happen as a result of these higher mortgage rates, which flow naturally from what the Bank of England and the Fed did yesterday, is that the housing market's going to slow down. And some people will end up not being able to repay their mortgages. And the people that have lent them that money for their mortgages are the banks. And so there is a sucking sound in what we call the, the credit conditions out there in the economy. Modern economies, uh, depend on the flow of credit. And the banking crisis um, and higher interest rates all act in the same direction. They reinforce each other in all sorts of ways. And credit availability for people with mortgages, um, for overdrafts, uh, for companies to invest, as a result of these two factors, is now going to be less than it would otherwise have been. And that is going to slow economies. So I, I would expect as a result of this, um, forecasts such as they are, with all of the caveats associated with them, people will be cutting their economic growth forecasts around the world today. I want to ask you in a moment about if there are echoes of 2008, because in hindsight, it's supposed to have all happened when Lehman Brothers went to the wall. Is that correct? 
yeah, it didn't. That was that was the that was the Lehman Brothers was was almost an end result of a whole series of yes. things that had happened beforehand. And when Lehman Brothers went, that was when we could conclude definitively, without any caveats, that we were in a global financial crisis. Before, how does sorry, Chris? Go on. Go on. No, you go on. Well, I was just going to ask how British rate today compares with the ECB rate because, and of course, it's a huge matter there for Germans for historical reasons to get a grip on inflation. Is there a difference between the European EU ECB experience and the British experience? Yeah, British inflation is worse than Europe's. There are lots of reasons for that. Um, I would cite Brexit as being one reason for that. Um, the difference in the rates is that Britain, as you said earlier, has an interest rate of four and a quarter percent set by its central bank, and the European rates went up last week to three and a half. So we're in the same ballpark, but because Europe has a slightly lower inflation problem than does the UK, its interest rates are somewhat lower than uh, than Britain's. But both regions, both the UK and the EU, uh, don't exactly have economies that are going gangbusters. Right. Um, the, one, one of the issues that's out there is that the US economy is actually very strong. Um, the UK economy isn't. Um, it's at best flatlining, we think. We've gone from fretting at the end of last year to thinking that the UK in 2023 would, ha- would be in recession now, because the first three months have actually been a wee bit better than expected, we think it will be flat. So everybody is relieved. <laughs> I mean, this, this, these are small crumbs of comfort, Damon. When you go from thinking you're going to be in recession to an economy that's going to be flat, that really isn't a cause for celebration. But it did mean, mean that we, we could breathe a sigh of relief that it wasn't going to be too bad. But each time these interest rates go up, um, an economy that is flatlining is very, very vulnerable. And the the European economy is in a better state than is um, is Britain's. It sort of sits between Britain's flatlining and the United States growth being quite strong. Um, it's okay, but it's nothing to write home about. All of these central banks, particularly in Europe and the UK, are therefore taking quite high risks with their economy because it won't take much uh, interest rate rises uh, and the associated tightening of credit conditions upon which economies rely to get these economies actually starting to shrink. And I think that's the risk that these central banks are running, is that they're going to overdo it in their pursuit of inflation. And the new bit of overdoing it, if you like, is that the way in which that will show up, it could come up, it could come in any one of a number of areas. The labor market would be the traditional one. We start to see unemployment go up. That would be the traditional signal yes. of a recession. The property market in any one or all of these regions, countries, could start to crack. Um, the other shooter drop could well be another leg to the banking crisis. Because one of the things that's emerging from particularly Europe, but also the United States handling of its banking problems in recent weeks, I would say anyway, is that they've been handled spectacularly badly. They've, they, they've effectively bailed out these banks in a way that they said post-financial crisis that yes. they would never do. And there were all sorts of steps, procedures, processes put in place by regulators to say, if this happens again, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be different to last time. Here's the playbook. And the first thing that happened, both in the United States and in Switzerland, is that the playbook got chucked out the window. At the time of that 
crisis, there was a phrase, there is a phrase, in fact, which was described by one wise financier as the foremost expensive words in history. And the words were, this time it's different. (laughs) Is it different, Chris? Or, if my memory serves me, there was this drip, drip period. I mean, for example, Ireland, we believe we have a strong economy here and growth and all of that. Are we right? Yes, we are. But you're also right about the drip, drip news. As I said earlier, the the Lehman Brothers story was almost the end of phase one. And it was the beginning of phase two, which was a much bigger deal. But phase one had been taking place for quite some time and it had begun quite a while before Lehman's went under, where some obscure bits of the financial universe, if you like, strange things started to happen. Uh, A couple of hedge funds went bust. Um, uh, One one of the earlier financial institutions that needed rescuing was a company called Bear Stearns in the United States. Um, We had Northern Rock in in the United Kingdom, in which people were queuing outside the door to get their money back. All these little things were going off all over the place. And the rhetoric from policymakers was exactly the same as it is now. This is one of the areas, it's only one, but it's one of the areas in which there are echoes of the financial crisis, is that we've got these weird things going on in obscure parts of the financial universe, SVB in California, Credit Suisse in Switzerland, doing strange things and having to be rescued. And people saying, don't worry, it's isolated, we've taken care of it, we've dealt with it, and it isn't systemic. Now, all of that might be true, but it is also what they said last time, and that last time, at least, they were wrong. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, Chris, let me ask you this question about short selling. And there are people who, and companies, 
who just do this. This is what they do. And they make fortunes, large fortunes. Can you tell us what short selling is more articulately than I can, I'm sure? And can you tell me if those people are active now? Because they were a factor, were they not, in 2007-8? Very much so. Short selling is quite simply selling something that you do not have. And that can be a share in a company. Yeah, it, it can be an exchange rate. Uh, it can be uh, quite fancy in that you can bet that Credit Suisse's debt, for example, won't be paid back. There are instruments available to you to do any or all of that. Could I put it as simple as this? You sell something for a tenner that you know you'll be able to buy for a fiver the next day. Well, you don't know. That's the bet, isn't it? You well, know, that, that you, you have the good, the good judges do. Yeah. So, for example, back in the day during the uh, Irish bit of the financial crisis, the short seller's favorite bet was Anglo-Irish Bank. You probably yes. remember that name, would, would, would prefer not to. I do indeed. And Mr. Quinn, Mr. Quinn was buying it all up. Absolutely. And uh, he, he was doing the opposite of short selling. He, he yes. was buying it up. Um, but hedge funds in particular, um, we know, uh, very early on in that crisis, decided that Mr. Quinn was wrong and other people that had been buying Anglo shares were wrong. And they took a very dim view of Anglo-Irish's loan book. It The, the hedge funds believed that Anglo-Irish's loans were going to go bad. So what they did was they bet that the share price would go down. Some of them correctly bet that the share price would go to next to zero which it subsequently did. Yes. The way in which a hedge fund in particular, but anybody, if you've got access to financial markets, if you've got a very good stockbroker, Eamon, I'm sure you've got several, um, <laughs> uh, what you do is that you, you say to your stockbroker or your financial intermediary, um, I want to sell Anglo-Irish bank shares. Obviously, this is back in the day. And what he yes. does, he finds somebody to lend them to you. So yes. you're, you borrow them and then you sell them in the marketplace because you've borrowed them, you've got, to, you've got to find a way of getting them back to repay that borrowing. And so a few days later, after the share price has gone down, you buy those share, shares back. So you, you borrow them when they are at 10 euros or whatever, sell them in the marketplace for 10 euros, sit there and wait. If your analysis is right, you buy them back at five, four, three, two, one, whatever, and you pocket the difference because right. then you, you buy them back and, and, and give them back to the person that you know. And there are various ways that you can do this across all sorts of things, including shares, exchange rates. You can do it for bonds. Um, it's, it's hard to do for property, but some people manage it. But most, but the participants in financial markets are very active short sellers. Absolutely. It's, it's rife, yeah. um, and an awful lot of people do it. Not everybody makes money at it, um, but an awful lot of people do make money. Can we assume that what we see as lay people, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the rest of us, the average person who really doesn't know in any depth what's going on, that there is an army of short sellers of what might be commonly called spibs, but they're not spibs, they're respectable professional people, and I could name a couple of companies in Dublin, but I won't. They're out there watching everything that happens, everything that moves. Can they have an impact on 
the price of things, the rate of inflation, and indeed the state of banks and companies. Absolutely. The most famous short seller in popular history is a guy called George Soros. Yes, you probably indeed. know that name. Yes, the man he's still, who, in the early still 19- around. Uh, yeah, he's still around. He's um, a great philanthropist these days. He's, he gives away much of his fortune that he made back in the day. And one of the many fortunes he made was short, st- was short selling the British pound back yes. in 1992. 1993, wasn't it? 1992, I think it was. Right. And he basically borrowed, in the same way that I just described shorting of Anglo-Irish shares, he borrowed British pounds and then sold them in the marketplace. And when the British pound went down, he bought them back. And he's the, the popular headline, it's not quite true, but the popular headline was the man who broke the Bank of England. And on in one day, back in the early 90s, when a billion pounds really was a billion pounds, he, met, he made a billion, is the popular yes. story that, that he made, by short selling the British pound. Now, the debate is, would the British pound have uh, been kicked out of what was then called the exchange rate mechanism? Would it have devalued in the same way that it did if George Soros hadn't made his bet? Did he create a self-fulfilling prophecy that meant that he was the cause of British pound fall, falling? Or did he just take advantage of something that was obviously going to happen anyway. Short sellers describe themselves as people who keep markets honest and uh, enable the right price for things to be established. And that if they didn't exist, price, prices for all of these different assets wouldn't revert back to where they should be, um, or at least at the speed that the reversion would take place much more slowly. And that they're a great way, the short sellers argue, of keeping financial markets honest. People who hate short sellers, and typically an awful lot of politicians do, uh, think that they create self-fulfilling prophecies and all they do is cause trouble and indeed cause financial asset prices to fall further than they actually need to. That debate's never been settled. It rages to the present day. Um, But, you know, the, the short selling is absolutely common. It happens every day, all day in all financial markets. Now, Chris, we asked you last week how safe we should all feel, and that's all our listeners to the stand, and how sanguine we should be about believing that the authorities, the men who know, have all of this under control. And you gave a somewhat skeptical answer. You said, "Mm, I wouldn't be too sure about that. I hope I'm not misrepresenting you. That's accurate. Are you still, in the past seven days since I last asked you the question, Seeing what you're seeing in Britain this morning, but in the US yesterday and elsewhere, are you any more or less sanguine? I'm less sanguine, Eamon. Uh, right. I'm not jumping up and down saying that, you know, we, we're on the verge of the big one or anything like that. But, uh, you know, in terms of think how my view has changed over the last few days, I'm now more worried about the economic outlook, what this all means for GDP, for growth, um, for jobs, that, that sort of thing. Um, and therefore what that might mean for banks as a, as, a, as a consequence. Because as I said earlier, the the rise in interest rates in and of itself will slow economic growth. That's why they're raising interest rates. Does, you know, that's precisely yes. the intention is to uh, generate slower economic growth, if not actually cause a recession. In the United States, for example, it's pretty well acknowledged that what the, they can't say it, but what the Federal Reserve has to do is actually get unemployment up. That's a horrible thing to say. It's, an, it's, it's a policy objective that they could never admit to. 
But in order to put a break on inflation, one yes. of the key components of inflation is wage growth, and they've got to get wage growth down, or at the very least, stop it from going up any further. And the way in which you do that is that you create unemployment. The hope is that they don't have to create very much unemployment to do this, but that's what they're going to do. And in a way, the ECB and the Bank of England are at the same game. They're trying to make sure that the labor market, the jobs market, doesn't generate any more wage inflation than we've already had. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to calibrate. And so while, we, while I say we hope that the number of jobs lost, the rise in unemployment is kept to an absolute minimum to get a grip on inflation, the risk that they run is that they overdo it and that we actually have to experience something quite nasty. That's nobody's central forecast yet, but the risks of that are rising. And the reason why risks are rising is, the, you know, interest rates have gone up again after, you know, a, quite an amazing 12, 14 months of interest rate rises. We've gone from negative interest rates in Europe to very positive rates very quickly, similarly in the United States and the United Kingdom. That's a big, what we call monetary tightening, that's all, pretty much in modern memory, at least unprecedented. The speed with which we put interest rates up is unprecedented. And so we don't really have much historic guidance as to what actually is going to happen next. What are the consequences of that? Um, in particular, what are the economic and job consequences of that? But the, but the, the double whammy that we've got that's new, because that interest rate story, as I say, is over a year old now, is that the banking crisis has the same effect on the economy as interest rate rises. It yes. restricts the flow of credit. Every bank today is having meetings having a discussion not unlike the one we're having, Eamon. And, so, and what they will say is, oh, blimey, the, the outlook is really uncertain. We, we really don't know what other banks are going to get themselves into trouble. These higher interest rates are going to cause economies to start to perhaps get into trouble. We need to tighten our belts. We need to make sure that whatever is coming down the pipe at us, we are able to survive. And the way in which banks do that is that they stop lending. And that's the tightening of credit will, that will add to the interest rate rises that will cause our economies to slow. And I don't think the, the authorities have fully taken this on board. And um, I think they might be surprised by what happens next to economies over the next few months as a result of these uh, economies are caught in a pincer movement. You've got interest rates on one side and tightening credit from the banking crisis on the other. And we, we've not lived through that for a very long time. And I, I think that is, is a recipe for trouble. And that's why I'm more worried than I was. Okay, Chris, we're very grateful to you for joining us. I wanted to ask you about the Northern Ireland Protocol and when Jeffrey Donaldson would make his mind up. But this seems rather more important on the day that's in it. And we're very, very grateful to you. Chris Jones, former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland, now a respected commentator, his own podcast, The Other Hand, is well worth a listen, particularly in these treacherous times. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.